My name is Father Gregory Pine, and I'm an assistant director for the Thomistic Institute, and I'm delighted to join you for this next, uh, most recent installment of Off-Campus Conversations, where we follow up with the Thomistic Institute speaker to try to deepen some of the insights which were, you know, sussed out in the context of a lecture or a conference or a retreat or whatever else. So, for this installment, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Scott Cleveland. Uh, so, thanks so much for joining. Yeah. Thank you so much, Father Pine, for having me. It's really great to be with you all. Boom. Okay. So, uh, folks will, will, will know you perhaps from some of the lectures that you've given that have been on uh, the Thomistic Institute podcast. I was <laughs> I remember being present for one. I think you gave it at the University of Oklahoma yeah, yeah, in right. Norman. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember next door, there was some event that was going on, which involved like jackhammers and <laughs> cowbells and all kinds of loud noises. <laughs> and I remember you soldiering on as every imaginable noise just absolutely wreaked havoc. Um, but for those who don't know you, would you say a word of a word of introduction, who you are, where you're from, what you do? Sure. So uh, I'm Scott Cleveland. I'm an associate professor of philosophy and Catholic studies at the University of Mary, uh, which is a school in Bismarck, North Dakota. I'm going into my ninth year there. And uh, I, uh, I work on virtues and emotions and some philosophy of religion topics. And I'm married to a philosopher. Uh, so we love talking about philosophy in front of our children, and we're probably shaping them for good or for ill uh, in that. So uh, it's great to yeah. be with you all. Uh, people sometimes talk about the two-body problem. <laughs> um, how have you managed the two-body problem in your own marriage? Yeah, yeah. So my wife homeschools our kids, and she teaches part-time. And, uh, okay. and that's been a great, great for us. That's awesome. Um, so we're following up on a lecture that you gave specifically about St. Thomas's theory of the passions, and you were careful in how you introduced it and how you advertised it because you wanted to set people up for a discussion of the emotions. Uh, so cheers to you for being disciplined in your approach. Um, this topic has attracted interest in Thomistic circles as of late. There have been a few books published. You cited uh, a mentor of yours, Robert Miner, who wrote um, a monograph on the subject, but then we also have Father Nicholas Lombardo wrote one, and then um, Dinah Fritz Cates wrote one. Just in like the last 15 years, it seems like people are getting excited about the passions, <laughs> naturally so. Um, so I don't know, do you, do you have any way to account for that or any means by which to account for that, that people are, are recovering an interest in the emotions or, or why it's a hot topic? Yeah, so I would just be guessing. But I think that there is a um, there's been a movement in you know the last half century toward virtue, and uh, and towards ethical accounts rooted in Aristotle. Uh, that and Aristotle gives a place to the passions and the virtues. Uh, and I think that Thomists are interested in the passions because um, much of I think the the sort of bringing to bear of Saint Thomas's work to the contemporary scene was focused on things like natural law. Um, his account of the existence of God or defense for the existence of God and other topics. I think um, getting deeper, further along in the Summa, uh, there's just also been a real revival, I think, in the philosophy community generally with an interest in, philosophy, in, in emotion. Probably some of that has to do with collaboration between psychologists and philosophers who are interested in sort of teaming up. And, uh, and I think it was just the right time for people to start bringing uh, St. Thomas's insights on the passions to bear on contemporary discussion. So that'd be my first my first stab at it. Nice, yeah. Um, I I too am interested in this particular theme um, from the true in itself type vantage, but also true in conversation with our contemporaries vantage, because it seems like you know 
Um, as the culture tends in one direction, you have interesting cross-cultural reactions, one of which is a, a renewed interest in Stoicism, uh, both academically and popularly. I'm thinking popularly, and, and I, I don't really know these thinkers or influencers too terribly well, but <clears throat> a lot of individuals who will talk about like masculinity and strength and disciplining or training one's emotions in such a way as to be more effective and to... Um, you know, like be free from the vicissitudes of this presently confusing age. <laughs> um, but but St. Thomas has some interesting things to say about Stoicism and specifically about Stoic philosophy and its contribution on the emotions. So I thought maybe we could just talk about that and, and set out some principles whereby to distinguish. So in, in kind of broaching that conversation, where would you say would be a good place to begin? Well, let's, let's set up two different extremes. On the one hand, let's suppose a person and I think this has been true, uh, especially in the middle and later parts of the last century, that people conceived of uh, a good life or human happiness is principally involving a kind of emotional fulfillment. And so there's a deep pursuit of sort of satisfying one's desires and finding emotional fulfillment in what one's doing. But the problem is that if, if one's emotions aren't sort of cultivated and they're just taken as given or infallible, uh, then the pursuit of emotional fulfillment can lead to real um, unhappiness, disappointment, um, disintegration, and so on. And I think that there could be a reaction to that, right? Okay, look, we followed the emotions and they didn't lead us to a good place. Uh, I think they're really more of an enemy to human happiness than anything else. And so let's pursue a path according to which we kind of stomp them out and are free of their influence. And that will free us to think better and to act more clearly or act more strongly um, without the sort of internal conflict that arises when your emotions are pulling in one direction, your mind says go the other direction. So the Stoics are going to um, want to, to, they're gonna view the passions as sort of enemies of the good life and uh, to be sort of, to be stomped out. And I can see how somebody would be very drawn to that, right? Uh, especially we're in such a visual age uh, where we're exposed to so much visual content that can really elicit and, uh, and arouse our passions. To be free from their influence sounds kind of nice. And so you can see the attraction uh, on the other end. Uh, let's, let's become Stoics about it. Let's eliminate the passions. Um, they're just enemies to the moral life. And St. Thomas is gonna walk a middle road between those. He's gonna uh, he's gonna say, well, no, we were made with the passions. They they have a purpose in our life. They're not infallible guides, and our per and our and our true happiness doesn't consist in emotional fulfillment as such, um, but instead consists in um, a virtuous life that's lived in friendship with God. That's motivated fundamentally by the virtue of charity, by which we love God for His own sake, uh, and the emotions end up playing a role in our life as um, a, the part of us which um, is to be cultivated in order to grow in virtue so that they, they and they play a variety of roles. When they're cultivated, they, there's an elimination of the internal conflict the Stoics are running from. There's also an, energiz an energizing of the moral life um, and an ability to appreciate um, things in a way that's really fully human. So that's be my first thoughts. Why don't you come back so I don't keep talking for too long? No, that's, that's great. No, that's great way to to kind of launch into the subject I, I again i don't know stoicism too terribly well and i don't know nouveau stoicism too terribly well 
Uh, from what I've gathered, there's a kind of doctrine of providence and then a kind of doctrine of flourishing, uh, which are, it seems, kind of important contributing factors to, um, what would one say, that the integrity that's proposed. So on the one hand, you have this notion of providence whereby, so like God is provident, but in a way very different from the Christian God, insofar as like you are fated or destined to occupy a particular place in the cosmos or in the universe, and, and that you're fated or destined to play a certain role, and that you don't have very much in the way of control over that. I mean, just the bare facts of it. But what you do have control over is the disposition that you adopt before that recognition. Um, so you can be resolute, uh, or you can be uh, reconciled, I suppose, to it, or you can live in a kind of constant rebellion and indulgence in emotional, what, um, emotional things, I don't know, for, for lack of a better term. And, and then that can potentially derail you insofar as you lose something of your, your human nobility or something of your, your full human stature. Um, so I think there are, there are parts of this type of description, which, again, I think a Christian would find somewhat sympathetic or would, would strike the Christian ear as uh, yet not entirely unfamiliar. And yet, St. Thomas's vision is again somewhat diff, you know, sim somewhat difficult, excuse me, somewhat different uh, or differentiated from. So what would be adjustments? Maybe, maybe it's too much to ask, like let's adjust a theory which is flawed, but what are, what are ways in which that backdrop helps us to, to foreground St. Thomas's thought is more in, co like, more in keeping with reality or ultimately more helpful? <laughs> yeah. So I think that uh, our emotions are our passions. So when I use the word emotion, I'm just going to refer to the passions, but we can make a distinction if we want uh, later. The, the, the passions are driven by um, our, our love for what's sensibly pleasing or painful. And, you know, when we're, when we're first born, that drives us to sort of nurse and to survive. And part of the human maturation process is um, when the young, the young person's reason comes on board and they start making decisions, um, they make decisions that go beyond just um, what's pleasant and, what's, and avoiding what's painful. And so it sounds like one of the things that St. Thomas would agree with in this, with this group would be that it's true that to mature as a human person, you have to transcend your pursuit of pleasure and pain and start to live for things that go beyond that, um, including sort of fulfilling one's role in the order of things and, uh, and not being driven merely by the pursuit of pleasure and pain, but by things that are higher, um, by things that are good in themselves. And so insofar as the group's sort of uh, adopting that, it seems like they're on the right course, uh, that there's something right about it. Now, of course, I don't know this, the notion of providence they have in mind. You know, there's probably some real differences we could draw there, but I think if we focus on the emotions, one of the ways that you could approach um, the formation of the emotions um, is that they are um, they're enemies of the moral life. And one of the reasons that, I mean, one of the ways that Stoics sometimes can be thought to think about this is that they're enemies because they're judgments. Uh, the, so when I have an emotional response, I'm basically judging something to be this or that. Um, and, and that can produce a conflict with my reason uh, and so make it such that um, they need to be eliminated so that I can see things more clearly. Um, St. Thomas is going to say, well, they're not a judgment per se, although they do involve um, an act of apprehension that's part of our sense faculties. So 
he thinks that um, even even animals when they perceive threats they're apprehending like the sheep is apprehending the wolf as a threat to them and so it generates a sort of fear when we get to us if we see a wolf and let's suppose uh, we're in the, one of the rare places in the world where there's still wolves around and we're in the wild and the wolf is appearing threatening to us we can perceive it as a threat too but it doesn't um it doesn't need to sort of conflict with our judgment so if we encounter a wolf at a zoo um we might judge, of course, it's not a threat, even though we feel fear. Um, and sometimes what we, and, and one of the ways that we cultivate our emotions is by um, habituating them such that our perceptions of things accord with our reason's judgment about them. I don't know whether or not this group has got that sort, those sorts of resources for trying to deal with what it means to, to cultivate emotions. Uh, what does it mean to help them be ordered towards reason and then serve the moral life? It sounds, it, it seems like, um, it's a little more simple. It's more about um, eliminating weakness, cultivating strength, enabling one to do, I mean, a kind of, I'm going to do my duty. The emotions are a distraction to this. I just need to press forward in order to fulfill my role and, um, and be the man that, you know, that I meant to be. Um, and that, that, I think, is going to have consequences. Uh, for example, if the person is emotionally underdeveloped, then they're going to, they're going to fail to relate to people in the right kind of ways. Um, they might fail, for example, to be a father in the right sort of ways because they can't relate to um, their children or express emotionally things to their children that actually is important for their children's maturation. Same for their spouse or for their coworkers or others. And so there's a sort of, there's a, there's a role in the cultivation of human emotions in the, the life of any person and, uh, and it enhances their ability to relate to others and to execute actions because they're able to harness a whole, a whole sort of psychological energy um, a set of, that, that, they, that they would otherwise be bereft of. Um, and that is going to make them more effective in a lot of ways. Um, even, though, even though I think that there is something right about, you might say, the impulse to a kind of, I'll just use a more Catholic term, mortification. The, the goal is not to sort of amp up the passions to be as intense as possible, but to, to bring them into their proper sort of place in serving the moral life. So St. Thomas has this beautiful image where he talks about, and this might be a contrast between, a way, an image to think about the contrast between a stoical view and a Thomistic view, where the, if you think of your reason as the ruler of a city and the passions are its citizens, um, if the passions are, or the citizens are rebellious, you could just try to stomp them out and eliminate them. And then you have no disorder in your city. Um, but you lose your citizens. Instead, the, the better approach is to seek to cultivate the citizens to contribute to the common good in a way that uh, keeps, and, and that, that's respectful, you might say, of their integrity as citizens. So in this case, it would be respectful of the passions and their integrity in human life. Yeah. A non-despotic rule. Yeah. So I was just talking with a couple of friends yesterday about this, and um, you, you gesture towards it in describing how emotional underdevelopment could negatively impact relationships with spouse or with children or with whomever else. So I think that one lack or one thing that's conspicuously absent from this type of account, and again, I, I haven't read it closely and I, I don't know it that well, so if it is present, I apologize to those more disciplined scholars of the subject matter who have done their due diligence. Um, but but it seems like one of the contributions of the Christian vision is that it gives the kind of like interpersonal setting of 
emotional integration. Um, so thinking again about this doctrine of providence, uh, the doctrine of providence in Christianity is, is wholly interpersonal insofar as God in his kind of omnicompetence to speak crassly, orchestrates all things strongly and sweetly unto the praise of his glory and the salvation of those whom he has created to precisely such end. And so you can know, for instance, that no evil will befall except you can kind of find within it some good hidden, and that you will not be tried beyond your strength because it's something that a good father puts at your disposition for growth and for healing, for flourishing. Um, and you can also see in everything set before you, in some way, shape, or form, a kind of deliverance of his providence, uh, that it's it's not to be gotten kind of like over or under or around, but but through, and in, and in getting through it, you can do so with him and in him by a kind of deep communion, uh, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is a wild, you know, it's just a wild revelation, but something to which we cling uh, very urgently and, and even desperately in the midst of, of trial and sorrow. And so there's a sense in which there's this interpersonal dimension or this interpersonal setting which draws on our emotional stores, which elicits our emotional stores. And so we'll use words like abandonment or consent or things along those lines to say, like, there's there's a person to whom I entrust myself in the midst of this experience. I don't know, you know, how comfortable you are kind of getting into the properly theological on this, but um, maybe could you speak, yeah, just a little bit more about the interpersonal setting of this um, kind of emotional or, or passionate integration, which you've begun to describe? Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think it's really important to distinguish between, um, so this, 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 is, this discussion, I'm just going to make a distinction real quick and then jump back into it. Um, I did, there's a distinction between acquired and infused virtues, where the acquired virtues, and I'm just going to state a certain way of thinking about this, are acquired via our own efforts. And um, thinking about a Stoic or maybe an Aristotelian philosopher, they're ordered towards a sort of natural good, a natural happiness and flourishing. Uh, and even though they might be aided by others in a community, they're, they're human virtues, and there's no grace involved in them. In the way in which an infused virtue is one that God places in us, that directs us towards um, him, and uh, is ordered towards a supernatural good. And infused virtues are given, and they grow by God's grace. Even if God grows them in accordance with our effort and cooperation, they're not grown, strictly speaking, through our our own efforts. They're grown through God's grace because they're ordered to something that goes beyond our nature, namely happiness with God in heaven. And so the virtues involve the emotions, right? The moral virtues in particular, uh, many of them involve the cultivation of emotions. That's just partly what they consist in. And so I, I would say that on the one hand, you have a view of virtue maybe in the Stoic realm that's pretty much a self-improvement project that's fueled by one's own efforts and uh, no one else is going to help you. Uh, and if you fail, it's on you. Uh, and, you know, for some that's exhilarating, for some that's crippling, and for many it leads to disappointment. But I think that the Christian life is one, like you said, of walking with God, our Heavenly Father, who provides for us and, and gives us all that we need to avoid um, falling into serious sin, who's not going to tempt us beyond what we're, we can bear. And I think that the Christian has to think about the development of virtue and the, the cultivation of, of the emotions as something that God wants for them and that he will enable for um, them to have in a way that is um, in a way that they can count on, but also in a way that helps free them from having to figure everything out, everything out before they pursue it. So, for example, God 
um, might, I might look at a sort of list of virtues and say, well, these sound great. I'm going to go for this. And God consistently sort of ends up directing me in another direction, maybe by placing certain temptations in, in my way or, or whatnot, um, because he knows that the right order, you might say, of the development of my emotional life, the development of my virtues, and I have to, I have to be willing to submit to that and to let him lead me, because he knows the pathway, you might say, to my own flourishing better than I can just figuring it out in the abstract. And so I would say there's like room for, for there's room for hope in a, in a way that's totally different in the Christian life. And there's also, um, with, there has to be real docility to the Holy Spirit in the Holy Spirit's leading our, our growth. Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe, maybe just to draw out some of those points with which you concluded. Um, so I'm thinking of the fact, you know, the passions, uh, drawn from the Latin for to suffer, you know, to undergo. Um, they reflect something of our, you know, at least impressionability or, or movability. Um, but if you were to describe it in more kind of humanistic terms, maybe our fragility, even our dependence. Um, so like we talk about, you know, our human nature after the fall is especially weak and wounded. It stands in need of strengthening. It stands in need of healing. But it's not like we're going to be strengthened or healed beyond our humanity. We'll always remain human, which always means kind of like in dialogue with or potentially impressed by, moved by, wounded by reality. Um, how does this, yeah, maybe how does this account of the passions help us to be better recollected or reconciled to our human state at, you know, to take the language from Alistair McIntyre's dependent rational animals, or is looking to our environment, looking to our community for a certain flourishing or fulfillment? Yeah. Well, I would say that um, I think that there can be, and, and hopefully you, you bring me back if I'm going on a tangent here, I think there can be a, a pursuit of happiness that involves um, the elimination of suffering, right? So basically the goal is to protect myself from all forms of pain um, and to provide for a sort of wall of protection around me that keeps me from, from suffering because I don't like the pain. And I think that's just not the Christian life at all. Um, Christ shows us some, a different life, a life where we have to take up our cross and follow him, and where pain is very much a part of it in this life. I mean, St. Paul writes about feeling anxiety and anguish and all these other things for his, the churches that he's founded because he, he loves them. And I think that a, a person who is seeking to escape pain fails to love in a certain way because of the relation between love and passion. So, our lo well, love is a, is a passion, right? So if I love something and it's uh, absent, I desire it. And when I find it, I gain pleasure from it. Um, and if I, uh, if I don't get it for some reason, I'm pained by it. And so the, the real... The real sort of key, if one were to really try to eliminate pain in one's life, is to stop loving anything. Uh, but that, of course, is not going to fulfill the person ultimately. It'll leave them empty, even if it'll leave them painless. Uh, instead, the, hum the, the Christian life is, is a call to love deeply, and that is going to entail uh, suffering deeply. But one can suffer without um, losing hope. And so we have a kind of, um, our suffering is put in a certain context that that doesn't overwhelm in a way that it would if if a person has staked everything on, say, avoiding suffering. Yeah. Um, no, that's that's beautiful for me to hear at this juncture. Um, as I never mind, keep going, Father Gregory. Um, life it is not random; it is provident. Um, okay, so then maybe we can 
take the next step and then talk about human flourishing. So you've made reference at various points to a kind of imperfect happiness, which is available to those who strive manfully in the order of nature, and then a perfect happiness, which is available to those whom God raises to communion with himself in the order of grace. Um, so far, you know, like we've been describing the passions as, you know, it's just part of our human experience. It's a kind of brute fact, and we're trying to sort out with these distinctions uh, one from the other, so that way we can maybe integrate them a little bit better. Um, but in, in the lecture that you gave, you describe a kind of what would one say? Sublimation might be a bad word insofar as I don't actually know what it means, um, but uh, like a kind of spiritualization of our passionate life. So it's called up into the life of reason and into the life of, you know, beyond reason, as it were, um, to, to God's own reason. Um, so like how, yeah, I think that, that, that a lot of people just think about it in terms of, okay, it's too much, I need to make it less, or it's too little, I need to make it more. And they think about it kind of dialectically. What we're talking about with this human human flourishing, which you've been gesturing towards, isn't just a dialectical back and forth. It isn't just like a, yeah, it's, it's not just a competition of two sides, which are warring in our members, though it's described in those terms. There's something else, like there's a, there's a further hope or there's a further prospect of integration. So can you maybe just gesture in that direction and help us to imagine it, help us to conceive of it? Yeah. Um, C.S. Lewis has this, this book called The Great Divorce. And, um, and it's all about uh, it's a sort of fictional account of folks who uh, are are kind of on the doorstep of heaven, and they're offered a chance to 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 come, and they say uh, no for a variety of reasons. And um and it's sort of looking at the psychology of what does it mean for a person to care for something more than they care for God. And there's one person who says yes, and uh, there's this song that's sung by nature, uh, rejoicing in this person's conversion. And in that song, there's a, I'm not going to get the line just right, but there's a, there's a way in which um, human happiness is such that when, when the human person uh, in all of its, in all of the person's parts obeys God's law and purpose in the way that the stars and the uh, planets obey the laws of nature, then we'll truly be in our own. But but for us, since we're free, we have to have a role in that. But the ultimate goal uh, that God has for us is to enjoy the divine life, but also to achieve a kind of natural, and I use this word perfection, um, which involves a kind of filling up of our potentials and uh, a, an ordering of all of our powers towards God. Uh, and so there's a, the emotions are, are part of that. Uh, and so when I love God with my will uh, and I choose to obey God and I say, God, you are first in my life, that can happen without any sort of emotional response. Um, but Aquinas has this interesting idea that when the, when the choice is particularly intense, there's a certain way in which the unity of the person sometimes produces a, a, emotional responses or a passion that's as consequence of an overflow of the intensity of the will, which is this kind of mysterious notion, but there's a certain integrity of us that's meant to all function together, moving in the same way. And so love and the will ought to correspond, ideally, to love in the passions. Now, of course, sometimes we're exhausted, sometimes we're depressed, sometimes we're in a situation where that simply doesn't happen. Sometimes it seems that God 
um, and allows us to experience what we call dryness in our spiritual life as a so in order to to purify us and to help us to grow and so I think that one of the things to remember is that even if the the end game for God is complete and total alignment between our passions and our will and love of him uh, there's all sorts of ways in which it's better for us in this life to not experience that alignment perfectly because of God's purposes for us and because of the the role that the conflict plays in our sanctification and so I think that um, the Christian has to always keep that in mind because both it's encouraging you're like well gee I don't have I don't feel anything when I'm praying so maybe something's wrong with me that's that's actually um, not it could be but it's probably it might not be it could very well be that God is simply allowing that because he wants us to pursue him, not because he makes us feel good, but for higher reasons. Um, so yeah. you want to follow up? I don't, I don't want to keep going for too long. No, no, no. I, I, that's, I think that's a super, yeah, that's just a very helpful point, especially for the 21st century, because I think there's been a tendency, I don't know for how long, I'm not old enough to actually register epics, um, but like there's been a tendency to elide health, happiness, and holiness, um, in a way that can sometimes be confusing. So you can imagine a young Christian, recently converted, excited about the faith, but still experiencing some of the, you know, physical difficulty, emotional disintegration, psychological imbalance of family trauma or habitual sin or whatever else. And then you hear it said, like, if you're a good Christian, you should be happy uh, or joyful or whichever language is chosen for the particular occasion. And then you experience that conflict in your members and you make the judgment, well, I just must be a, a bad Christian, which again could be the case. Um, but but it, it might not insofar as there's a kind of strangeness to the definitions being used and the way in which they're being deployed and just the kind of logic of perfection. And you've made these distinctions, which I think are super helpful. So um, yeah, maybe we could, like in light of what we said with the passions, just, just follow up then about happiness like what what does it mean to be happy is it is it a mere matter of fit having a kind of conviction that you are where you ought to be or you're on the trajectory for a kind of integration subject to god's providence as you know he see fit he sees fit to bring it about or abandoned to the disposition according to which he brings it about or or you know like is there something yeah there's got to be something more to be said so what, what how would you follow up with that particular individual or follow up in light of these particular conflicts yeah well, I would. I think the first thing I would say is that. Uh, I mean, so this is a Christian, so they're probably not going to think this in an explicit way, but they might be tempted to think that the world is enough for them, and that they can find fulfillment in it, and that that is, um, kind of going to all line up for them if they're really pursuing holiness. And I would say that they have to make sure that they keep their, their vision of happiness clearly before them, and that 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 view of happiness is ultimately sharing the divine life with God. And that happens in, a, in an incomplete way here and to various degrees. But ultimately, there will never be perfect fulfillment outside of that union, which happens in heaven, not in this life. And so they have to sort of remember that, I think. I think also their expectation for what happiness entails here has to look slightly different than just health and uh, you know, feeling good about your body and having enough money and all that. Um, not that those things are bad, but but the virtues that they're pursuing, these um, perfections of themselves or these developments of their powers are ordered to a different 
notion of happiness. So for example, um, the, the virtue of temperance for Aristotle is governed by what's conducive to keeping the body in good condition. Um, but the virtue of temperance for the Christian can include that, but it can also it, it also transcends it. It's 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 also governed by what's needed to subdue our desires to our our spirit to our will, especially in order to pursue higher goods. So, for example, a person might fast in such a way that is conducive to their holiness, but you know maybe isn't great for their body. Uh, it might be that you know they'll get weaker <laughs> if they fast. Uh, and so I think that um, they have to keep um, that, that distinction in mind. I think then also when we think about what they what God wants for them in this life, he does want them to be happy. He does want them to develop naturally. But as I was saying earlier, their happiness, which is a kind of um, flourishing that entails or that, that, that involves um, growth and virtue, which is a sort of when their different powers are working as they ought, um, that that path is is a long one, and it's also one that route of which is not going to be evident to them, and um, and they need to you know grow in certain things. I mean, often so we think about the cardinal virtues, which are the virtues of justice and courage and temperance um, and prudence, and uh, and those are vital to pursue. But they they fundamentally need charity and humility to get going in the right direction. And so um, I, I I guess I would say that. Um, we don't want this person to think that they're not making progress in the moral life and pursuit of holiness in virtue of not having acquired quickly some of these virtues. Um, and, and, and I think that maybe I'll, I'll circle back, but then this is my, the one point is the one I just made, which is um, that's because God might have an order for their development that's, that's just right for them, that's the best for them, but which is not one that they would be able to discern on their own. Um, and I think the other thing I would say is that uh, God is, I mean, the development of virtue, generally speaking, takes a lot of time. And I think that um, God is, you know, often takes a long time in, in getting, getting us over certain things. And, and he might even take longer than we hope because actually it's something that we need. We need to suffer in a certain way because we need humility, for example. Uh, and, uh, and when that humility happens, then, then the thing goes away because that, that was in fact the impediment that God needed to remove before he accelerates us another way. So I guess I'd come back just to this person to, um, to say, um, be docile to the Holy Spirit and trust that God is working. He's not, he's not absence. He's not just sort of waiting around and doing nothing. He's, he's working in the person's life and they need to trust in him even when they're not experiencing maybe the psychological freedom that they'd hope they'd have sooner nice all right um yeah pursuant to those thoughts i have one final question and it's like the place i suppose of self-forgetfulness in this vision because you know we we hope for a modicum of physical health and emotional stability and psychological integration and but it's it's often the case that when people focus on those things somewhat um, obsessively that um, it can introduce, uh, I don't know, it can introduce a kind of, what's the word that I'm looking for? Navel-gazing? Um, there's probably better words for these things, but um, yeah, just just like uh, a, a kink into the system which makes it come undone, or it's evident to everyone else that it's, that it's not holy or it's not healthy, except for the person himself who's pursuing it. 
Um, so it's like there's this kind of paradoxical quality where one must lose his life to save it, right? One must forget himself in order to come to some modicum of of peace and integration. It's like, you know, if you go to God for your own well-being, you get neither God nor your well-being. But if you go to God for God, you get God, and then you come to discover that there's like some well-being in its train. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so right. yeah, maybe maybe just a final word yeah. about about self-forgetfulness, or you gestured in the direction of humility as well. Yeah. But how do these things play a role? Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, um, our happiness depends on our giving ourselves away in love, and that that requires a a self-forgetfulness. Um, Aquinas talks about the difference between our individual good and the common good, the good we share with others in community, and the common good being higher, and that we ought to pursue that good um, uh, above our own, such as we're willing to make sacrifices to our own for it. And I think that our Lord is, you know, a principal example of this, who's um, doing everything he does for the love of his Father and the love of um, those that he's been given. And I think that it's difficult sometimes. I mean, so when we think about virtue and happiness, we, we tend to think of it, we can think about it in a sort of self-oriented way, like you were saying, Father. Uh, but, but ultimately speaking, given our social nature, given um, our capacity to, to love other things for their own sake, and that there are things greater than us in the world, like God, well, not in the world, but God, of course, is greater than us, that we ought to love um, God above ourselves um, and serve him in such a way that, in doing so, we will be fulfilled, but you're right. We have to, as it were, focus on God first, and then all these other things will be given to us as well. When we seek to secure them for ourselves, we end up actually not cultivating the virtues that we might think we were aiming for. And as a consequence, we're in a sort of counterproductive state, a state where we're hampering our growth rather than aiding it. And so this requires a great deal of faith and trust uh, and uh, a willingness to... Um, to, like you said, lay down our life uh, and not cling to it. Yeah. So as is often the case with good speculative distinctions, they help you to make sense of your experience, to kind of interpret your experience as it were. Um, but, you know, translating to the practical order, there remain as yet obstacles or hindrances to their implementation, um, which, again, brings up for us the interpersonal dimension, like the communal dimension, just in describing the common good. That's something that, again, that we've lost sight of, or we've largely lost sight of in the 21st century. And it makes possible these kind of um, solipsistic or even paranoid pursuit of whatever it is. Um, uh, so yeah, so I think that just to have these things brought before our eyes is an essential feature of, you know, pursuing the type of conversations, pursuing the type of discourse, which can ultimately lead to yeah, flourishing you know, among, among those God-fearing persons who listen and then the communities which grow out of that. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, as a, as a parting note, do you have any, maybe like recommendations, whether reading recommendations or, um, otherwise, uh, that, that folks who want to follow up on this subject might profit from? Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned, um, Robert Miner's book for those who really want to get into the details and the passions. I really think it's outstanding. And, uh, and I think it, it's with Cambridge and it, it's just very good. Now it's very academic. It's very into the weeds on it. But for those who are interested in that, I think it's a wonderful resource. Um, so that would be my, my academic recommendation. I think that you also can just read the saints and they will, 
it'll talk to you a lot about this stuff, you know, sometimes with the distinction, sometimes without. Uh, but it's uh, but you'll find that there's a, a unity to their voices with respect to some of the major themes we've been talking about here. And uh, you know, St. Francis of Sales is a great one. Um, St. Thomas, of course, is wonderful. Uh, but there's a whole host of saints out there for you, for you that, that will talk about what does it mean to, to find fulfillment through giving yourself away in love and what does it look like to train the passions in such a way that they serve the moral life rather than hindering it. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers. The wisdom of the saints. As G.K. Chesterton said, slight paraphrase, the mystic is the most practical of men. So there you have it. Um, great. Well, thanks so much again. And turning then to you, the listener, thanks for tuning into this episode of Off Campus Conversations. You can expect to hear more every two weeks, uh, regularly recurring. Um, also, what other, what other things? He, he brainstorms out loud while concluding the episode, thus absolutely alienating the listener. Oh, okay. Yeah. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the Tomisic Institute podcast, whether on your podcast app or on YouTube. Uh, one small announcement is uh, many of us Dominicans look forward to meeting you, praying with you at the Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage, which will take place on September 30th at the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. It'll be like a, a day of recollection with two talks. I will be giving them. And then adoration with confessions, a little lunch break, uh, recitation of the rosary together, and a vigil mass preached by Father James Dominic Brent, who uh, who is often on the Thomistic Institute podcast and at Thomistic Institute events. So we look forward to, to meeting you there again, to, to chatting with you there, to praying with you there. So that's all we have for you. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll look forward to talking with you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast.